We're going to look for a little time at the opening verses of chapter 9 of Isaiah this morning. And although I put Isaiah 9, 1 to 7 as our text, really uh, our text is mainly verses 1 to 5. Um, And it is about great hope or great light in great darkness. As we consider this further section of, this further part of the section of the book of Isaiah called the book of Emmanuel. And we'll see, we see here there is a description of great darkness. It started in chapter 8, in, in a sense it started in the very first chapter of Isaiah. As we have read through these passages in recent Sundays, we've seen the sin uh, that's overtaken not just the northern kingdom of Israel, but the sin that's gripped the southern kingdom of Judah, a thick spiritual darkness. At the end of chapter 8, that darkness is put forward graphically in the description of occult religion that has come into the nation. Those that have familiar spirits and wizards and people seeking God among the dead. Uh, And uh, then we read about those who are cursing and fretting against their king and their God. Uh, And it's a, a pretty hopeless seen there. And we've seen from the early chapters of Isaiah that this is really all the result of idolatry, of immorality, of violence, all kinds of evil, and it reflects the departure of the nation from its gods. And what we see here in microcosm in the nation of Israel and Judah is really a picture of what is going on in the world ever since the fall of mankind into sin through Adam and Eve. And it is described for us graphically in Romans chapter 3, and let me just briefly refer that to you. As the Apostle Paul makes it very clear why everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says there is none righteous, No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after good. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And then he lists the various aspects of human nature and human living. The the mouth, the use of the tongue, the uh, actions of the person, their feet, swift to shed blood, uh, and the the hopeless sense of no peace, no peace with God, no fear of God before their eyes. And what he's doing is touching every aspect of human imagination and thinking and motivation as God sees it, as reflecting uh, how we are. And we needn't say this is just confined to Judah, uh, 700 BC, we are thinking of the nations of the world. We're thinking of lives today of those who do not know Jesus Christ as their saviour. And he describes this as the people walking in darkness. Uh, There is, of course, in this passage, uh, an historical, a political element. He's talking not just about the spiritual darkness, but there is the darkness of a nation that's only just in existence There have been huge incursions by the northern kingdoms 
northern kingdom of Assyria and its allies into the Holy Land. And that explains why he talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali being afflicted uh, and uh, Galilee of the nations being afflicted. These are in the northern parts of Israel. And this is the way in which invading nations, which were usually from the north, sometimes from Egypt, but usually from the north, they would come and this would be one of the first areas to be attacked. And he speaks about it being grievously afflicted. Uh, There's defeat, there's pillaging, there's rape, there's murder, there's uh, deportation, all kinds of horrible things that go on in that kind of incursion. And what we need to see, of course, is that these are not just here because these kinds of descriptions to give us historical information, they are here to illustrate what it is to be in darkness, in spiritual darkness, what it is not to know Jesus Christ as your saviour, the place we all start with in this life. I want to just look quickly at a few aspects of this darkness, this spiritual darkness, whether we're thinking of Judah or whether we're thinking of today. And the first and obvious thing is to say this darkness is the darkness of sinfulness. It is the knowledge which we all have in our conscience that we have broken God's commandments, that we haven't kept his ten commandments, nor his two great commandments of loving him and loving our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, as we come into this world and as we grow up without him in our lives, we've never even really bothered to find out what these commandments are, very likely. And this leads to a deep inner deadness and emptiness. And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians describes what it means in the heart of a typical unbeliever. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, he describes, and there are many, many places we could pick from the New Testament to illustrate this, but look at <coughs> what he says in Ephesians 4.17. <coughs> This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness." As someone has said, the heart of even the most upright of men and women is a nursery ever spawning sinful thoughts. And what if we were to each to have an exact digital recording of our moment-by-moment thoughts played back? But the thing is, God does see our moment-by-moment thoughts. The darkness of sinfulness There's also the darkness of spiritual blindness, that is, of not being able to see. And how many people in the Gospels did Jesus heal of their blindness? And how often was this an illustration of what he does for the human hearts? The blindness of not knowing God. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, we read this, that 
What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now he's speaking there of Christians. But in verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The blindness of not even knowing or understanding about God and about Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, we see this darkness, and this is particularly true of Judah, as we've seen in chapter 8 and its occult and pagan practices, the darkness is greatest in someone who doesn't know Christ in their religion, in their worship. Instead of the triune God of the Bible, instead of the God and Father of Christ, instead of Yahweh, man's ideas and other religions, or the so-called gospel of Christ, I say that because it's a gospel that's been watered down and corrupted to remove all the parts that offend man. And we say, well, some say, I should say, that God is love, and they say nothing else about him, and they imply that he will accept anything. It doesn't matter. He, will, he isn't bothered by uh, his own commandments, and he will accept us because he loves us. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. This is a false God. This is an idol of man's imagination. And then finally, as we think of the darkness, there's an aspect that nobody particularly likes talking about, but we have to recognize there's another darkness, and this darkness is most certainly present in Isaiah chapter 9. It's the darkness of the wrath of God. God's anger. Before the Passover took place in the land of Egypt, at the time of the Exodus, there was one particularly terrifying plague that came upon Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. This final plague before the Passover and the killing of the firstborn themselves was an evident sense of the wrath, the anger of God, that he was not present. He was withdrawn he had uh, he was angry yes and that's why if you're not saved you have a gnawing sense of his remoteness and you have a sense of horror that deep down God is against you and so death becomes the king of terrors and what lies beyond the grave is not something you want to think about this is called the wrath of God which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And as we consider this darkness, political, religious, and above all spiritual, here 
in the land of Israel. One thing is quite clear in the book of Isaiah, and indeed it's clear in all of the teaching of the Bible, it is that only God can create the lights, just as he did in creation. And so we see here the wonder of what is said about this this land of Judah in all its darkness because it says the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. In the passage, there is, of course, a political military outworking of this, although that's not the only aspect. And that explains verses 3, 4, and 5 in our passage, as it speaks about breaking the yoke of his burden, the rod of his oppressor, as it speaks about the battle, and so on. God will yet deliver Israel militarily from the Assyrian invader. And the section right in the middle of Isaiah, in chapters 36 and 37, tells us in great detail of this astounding victory through God's direct intervention. But we're not only to think of it in that way. And the New Testament tells us that we're not only to think of it in that way because it also reminds us this passage is a prediction of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 12 to 17, we have this section of Isaiah quoted, Matthew 4. Verse 12, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt into Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. No longer is this just a prophecy about political deliverance. It's now a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And the very area of Israel, of Judah I should say, the very area of, sorry, of Israel as a whole which is so often darkened by military invasion from the north, as well as being full of the idolatrous darkness of the northern kingdom of Israel, someone has described that as a 200-year-plus exercise in apostasy in the north, that very area is to become the place of greatest light when Jesus walks and teaches in Galilee. Of the Gentiles. What a breaking in this is of the light of God. And it is again, even as the darkness is a reminder of where we are spiritually without Christ, so this passage is a reminder of where we can become spiritually through Christ. This passage reminds us firstly that God breaks deliverance from sinful dominion. God breaks the power of sinful dominion. Now this dominion, in terms of Assyrian 
invasion and so on can be thought of as a kind of second slavery in the life of Israel. And there's reference to what we might call the paraphernalia of slavery. In verse 4, it speaks about the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. It speaks about being under inflicted suffering. It speaks about the vindictiveness of the conqueror. It speaks about uh, (coughs) um, something which chafes and wears down. It's a kind of echo of Israel toiling under the Egyptian lash when it was in slavery in Egypt and had to make bricks without straw and was in hard bondage. It speaks about Israel when not under the Assyrian but under the Midianites who were like a swarm of locusts and they came in in the days of the judges, in the days of Gideon and they would swarm over the land and they'd grab all the crops and they would go away and leave the land stripped of all produce. And what he says here is that this light is going to bring about a breaking of this bondage. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Just as when Israel was overwhelmed by the Midianites, God brought about a famous victory through Gideon against overwhelming odds with a tiny army, so God will deliver sinners like us through a child, through a son, through him who will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it will bring about the breaking of the dominion of sin in the life of the individual sinner. Hear what it says in Romans chapter 6. Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 6, verse 14. (coughs) For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. And then verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. And then verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life the darkness in the heart the sense of alienation towards God the sense of his wrath somehow hunting you down and pursuing you it's all dealt with the guilt has gone the power of sin in your life is broken the presence of sin will not yet Go until you die, but it is guaranteed that when you die and you go to be with Jesus, there will be no more sin. And the consequences of sin will be dealt with when you have a resurrection body made like Christ's, breaking the dominion of sin. And secondly, the complete and better use of your life. 
Notice what it says in verse 5. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. It's a very condensed statement, but it is really picturing to us the aftermath of a battle. And one side has won conclusively. And they've got all the paraphernalia of war, all the weapons, even down to the sandals that people wear, even down, as someone said, to the combat boots. And they've got it together and they've piled it on the fire. And they will warm themselves with that fire. They'll get some use out of it. It'll be the burning and fuel of fire. Such is the complete conquest and complete annihilation of this dominion that there is now another and better use for the weapons of war. And really it's speaking to us, perhaps in metaphorical terms, of lives liberated to serve God and to serve man. Earlier in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 2, we read of something similar in verse 4 of Isaiah 2. How God shall judge among the nations and rebuke many people, (coughs) and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. There's been a change of use, you see, of the wood and of the metals for the instruments of war. They're now being used as agricultural implements. A change of use of the weapons of war, they now become fuel for burning and warming and cooking and whatever else is done with the fire. And it speaks of a life that is now liberated to serve God and man. When the dominion of sin is broken in your life, you can love God and serve God and love and serve your neighbor. Instead of being daggers drawn, even with perhaps your neighbors or members even of your own family, you are now liberated to walk in newness of life and to be a different person at work, a different person at school, a different person in your neighborhoods. You see, you've been set free. And then thirdly, another effect of this light is to bring great joy. Now our AV has a very unfortunate translation here and none of the other versions, none of the other translations actually replicate this translation. In verse 3 it says, In the AV thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. That not should not be there. It doesn't make sense with the rest of the verse anyway. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Again, we're to think of a military situation. They've conquered. And they're now enjoying the victory, dividing the spoil. Or the, again, we can think of it as an agricultural metaphor. According to the joy of harvest. But it isn't just a kind of booze up. It isn't just a kind of uh, secular, ungodly sort of delight. They joy before thee. The, The joy is joy in God and through God. And we can say, if we look at verses 3 to 5, 
actually, it is addressed to God. Thou hast multiplied the nation. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. It is, in fact, the language of praise. And here is something else that comes into the heart of the Christian, the heart of someone in whom God has brought salvation through Jesus Christ, joy. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. A deep joy, because you have peace with God, because God is no longer angry with you for your sin. Your sin is forgiven. Christ has become your light and your saviour. And now you joy in God. And although you haven't become inhuman, although other things do impact on you, sorrows, disease and all that, it cannot take away that joy. Sometimes your joy is in the minor key. Often it's in the major key. And you learn to rejoice always in God your saviour. Because of this light that's come into your heart. Well, who is it who comes into your heart? Verses 6 and 7 describe. It's, it's almost indescribable, isn't it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, that could be translated, his name shall be called a wonder. Counselor, El Gibor is the Hebrew expression for the, uh, a mighty warrior. But this son of God is also one with the father. And he is the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, if you need to carry things, you put on, I suppose, you maybe put on a backpack. And that's the nearest, perhaps, to carrying something on your shoulder. In the days this prophecy was written, there would have been some sort of yoke, some sort of wooden structure, perhaps, to help you balance the load. But in our day, it's a backpack. Well, Without being irreverent, can we think of the Lord Jesus Christ with a backpack? And on that backpack, he has the government of the whole world, the whole universe. All things were made by him, and he upholds all things, and he rules over all things. And this is the one who has come into your heart and taken away your sin and given you newness of life in him. Great light in the darkness, great hope. All through the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, all through his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And we see there's that important connective word in verse 6, for unto us a child is born. All this light because unto us 
A child is born, a son is given. Everything has been changed by a mere child. But that child laid in the manger at his birth is none other than the Son of God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace.